you happen to have joined us when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. We just work our way through uh, the scriptures, and uh, to, we are, happen to be in the book of first, the letter of the first to the first letter to the Corinthians, and it's chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified, testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father, the God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in the preceding passage, Paul had shared the teaching of the apostles, that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose from death on the third day. He then gave us the, this most complete list that we have in scripture of the eyewitnesses who had seen the risen Christ, ending with the last person seeing him himself, Paul. He had met the glorified Christ on the road to Damascus when he had that sudden about face and went from being a Christian 
persecutor to a Christ proclaimer. This review of those essentials of the faith was an, an introduction to the Corinthians to renounce an idea that, that had infiltrated the Corinthian church and this idea taught that there was no bodily resurrection. Verse 12 and 13 again, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, at that time, Sadducees and um, probably pre-Gnostic thought taught that, that there was no resurrection. That, well, maybe some of them thought Sadducees didn't, but some others thought, that, especially Gnostics and Greek culture, thought that, that when you died, your, your spirit might go, but your evil carnal body would, would never rise. Sadducees didn't believe in any afterlife at all. And Gnostics, and shortly after this, would be teaching that only the spirit would go on because that evil body, it was good to get rid of the evil body. So while Gnosticism developed in a later area, some of those ideas were already present during this time in the Corinthian church. Imagine, as Paul goes around on his missionary journeys and he's trying to plant churches, imagine how hard it would have been to find leadership to take over after you left. Because in some of these places, Maybe there was a nominal Jew who might have known a little Old Testament background, but in a lot of them where there were just Greeks, they had no background at all. They didn't grow up in the church. They didn't grow up with the, the teachings of the scriptures. And, and so maybe he stayed with them a year here in Corinth, a year and a half, and then leaves them and imagine the ideas that would filter in. Because during that year and a half, he couldn't teach on everything. And so this is one of those things that had crept into the church. But in the preceding passage, Paul was telling us that this is a core of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he conquered death and hell. But if you believe the dead aren't raised, he says, how can you say Christ was raised and for what purpose? Now, perhaps some of the Corinthians were, were saying, as is claimed by skeptics today, that Jesus never rose, and that's why Paul gave that list of eyewitnesses who, they, who some, he said, were still living. You could go and ask them, and, and they could confirm what they saw. The person making the case for resurrection here is the man who saw, personally, the risen, glorified Jesus with his own eyes. So he has no doubt what he's talking about. And he had no doubt about the witness of the apostles as well. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. It shows that Jesus is the Messiah that was sacrifice, whose sacrifice was accepted by God. And why believe in him at all if this life is all there is? If we're only temporal beings, what reason do we have to sacrificially serve, to love, and what do we have to hope in? Are we just animals as the world would have us believe? And then if that's the case, we should all act like animals. Imagine the nightmarish condition the world would be in if, if that were true. And what we are recently seeing in the streets of major cities 
is the product of that kind of teaching. Wherever atheistic thought prevails, the same results are evident. Some of the most famous uh, atheists, like Nietzsche and other renowned atheists, foresaw that when people forsook religion, they would have to create some new kind of belief to keep order in society. It was the nat natural conclusion that you take away religious morality and the basis for morals, then everything would become chaos. Verse 15 and 16. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. The apostles' role and their, their chief witness was to testify that Jesus had conquered death. And if that's not true, the whole gospel is a lie. And they're not pro proclaiming the true God. This doctrine that was circulating among the Corinthians was undermining the very foundation of the gospel. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If the sacrifice of Jesus uh, was not proven to be accepted by the resurrection, then what hope do we have that his death was in place of our punishment so that Jesus might count us, that God might count us as righteousness? We're still facing the wrath of God for our sins, if that was the case. If the power of resurrection to live a new life isn't available to us now, which is something Kip was sharing in the book of first the letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter. If that's not true, where Paul said you have that resurrected power now in your life, then we're condemned to live in the flesh. Denying resurrection is to deny the power of God in our present lives and holiness in our in the life to come. If, on the other hand, they were holding this Greek thought that the body is evil, merely moral, mortal matter that, uh, that must be destroyed and the soul is eternal, then a disembodied ghost-like soul with little or no way to express it upon death would go to be with the gods. But God created the human body in Eden. And God said of everything he created that it is good. What God makes is good. Denying the resurrection is to deny the power of God to undo the curse of sin. But the God of the Bible is all-powerful. Amen? As Jesus demonstrated when he raised people from the dead, including his own resurrection. Not only can he restore the body, but the soul as well, which is the mind, the will, and the emotions conform to Christ's likeness. The image of God will be restored in the body and in the soul. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection, our loved ones who have died and those who've gone before us are just gone to oblivion or, or doomed to suffer the wrath of God. What a thought of hopelessness. Most of the world has an innate sense that this life is not the end. And modern education tries to convince us that this is all there is. But you know, with so many people 
now being resuscitated after being dead, flatlined for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and talking about their, their soul leaving their body and going on through this tunnel and seeing this being of light who, who asks them about their life and they talk about uh, it emphasizing where they were loving and where they were selfish. With those stories around the world being repeated over and over again with modern science being able to resuscitate people, even the skeptics are reconsidering. One popular idea is that we work off our bad karma in multiple incarnations. That's Hindu and Buddhist thought. It does recognize the need for justice, that if there's wrong, there must be a balance, there must be right, or something must be paid. But if that was the case, if over the millennia we were going round and round trying to get better and better, wouldn't it be a much more loving and gracious world? But nothing's changed. When we read through Genesis and Exodus and, and the history of the Jews, we go, wow, that sounds just like today. People aren't getting better and better. They're the same as they always were, the same fallen people. We humans have been around a long time, and our inhumanity demand has changed very little, if any at all. If it were possible to pay off our sins by our deeds, Jesus would not have needed to die. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. If our hope in Jesus is only for this life, we're to be pitied above all. For if we suffer for Christ in this life and then we just die and there's nothing or we're judged guilty, what kind of a blessing is that? Why would you want to do it? What kind of love would have us live under persecution, die, or be doomed just to not exist? The reason that it's better to live for Christ in this life is that we experience his love, his grace, forgiveness of sins, and the power to express that life to others. We live for a purpose, the hope of serving God in this life and future resurrection at the time when his work in us is complete and we are like him. He even promises to share his glory with those who suffer with him. Paul endured all the suffering he experienced with the hope of the glorious result after death. Like Jesus, he endured for the joy that was set before him. We need to do the same. Is your life difficult? It wouldn't come close to what Jesus endured, or the Apostle Paul for that matter. We should follow their examples and live in faith each day with abiding joy in our hearts, knowing what awaits us when we finish our course. I like to call it graduation. When we believe what, I'm sorry, what we believe about resurrection determines the attitudes of our hearts in the trials of life. If we truly believe it. But that's the issue. Do we truly believe it? Do we know we're going on from this little limited time we have here on earth to eternity in God's presence? That we're going to a God who loves us and gave himself for us? If we really do, it'll change the way we live day by day 
Consider how this verse contradicts the claims by false teachers who say that following Jesus will make you successful. If their definition of success is doing God's will no matter the cost, yeah, I agree with that. But more often, it's about material gain or recognition from the world, fame, prosperity. The prosperity teachers abound because the old nature loves to hear their message of becoming wealthy or important. Very few of God's true servants are recognized by the world. The vast majority are shunned by the world because their lives of devotion and selflessness are repugnant to those who live only for the present moment. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise God, Jesus did rise, as we just sang about over and over, hallelujah. Jesus rose as the first fruits of a great harvest of souls who will make up his bride. First fruits were the first portion of a crop to ripen. And in, in, the, in the law, they were to, people were to bring the first fruits of their fields to the temple. It was, um, it was a sign that you believed that God would bring in the rest of the harvest. It was a demonstration of faith. Um, you know, when uh, my, my wife's family are farmers, and the first crops that come in get the, be the highest price because everybody's wait been waiting all year for fresh whatever, cherries, apples, whatever it is, right? And so they get the highest price. They're the most prized. But that was what they gave to the Lord, the most valuable, the first part. But it was an act of faith that every, all the rest would come in. It was trusting God. To not give it as an offering was to doubt God. It was to doubt that God could see the rest of the harvest come in. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection are an offering accepted by God, which is the guarantee of our own resurrection that will follow. He's the first fruits from the dead, and that means the rest of us will follow in, in, in the time. Verse 21 and 22, for as by man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. Adam sinned, mankind inherited his sin nature, upon which is the punishment of death. But accepting the death of Jesus on our behalf means our punishment has already been dealt out. We go from death to life now, presently. We're entitled to spiritually rise with Jesus now and live in freedom from the bondage of sin. To die to our old Adamic nature with Jesus on the cross is to have eternal life now, not someday in the future. When we come to Jesus, we have eternal life presently. Our dead bodies will also rise when that last trumpet sounds, which we'll get into next week, uh, two weeks from now. Just as all of us are affected by Adam's sin, so all who are in Christ are affected by his resurrection, spiritually and physically as well. The point made by the Apostle Paul concerning this parallelism between Adam and Christ was to highlight the fact that Christ 
like Adam, is the progenitor of a new humanity. Adam was the first natural man. Christ was the first spiritual man. And so when we are in Christ, we become new creations. Amen? As Paul taught the Ephesians, Jew and Gentile are made one new man. They're no longer two races of people with different destinies, but we become children of God by faith in what Christ has done for us. We join the family of God. We are citizens of heaven. The Bible begins with the fall of man and it concludes with the restoration from the fall through resurrection made possible by our Savior. It's the grand finale. The kingdom of God is established in righteousness and the lion will lie down with the lamb and nothing will hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. You know, I'm often asked about, well, when we die, what happens? It says we sleep in the dust of the earth, but what do we just, are we like in oblivion or what? Do we go to heaven or what happens? Well, Paul makes it clear for us in Philippians 1.23. He says, I de desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Not, he didn't say, I desire to take a long dirt nap. He, was, he knew when he died, his spirit would go to be with Christ. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says when Jesus returns, he brings those, the spirits with him, those who are in Christ with him, their, then their bodies that are sleeping in the dust of the earth, the physical body that's sleeping in the dust of the earth, will rise and meet their spirits in the, in the air and will forever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. So, and, and some people say, well, what's that like? I mean, just if you're just a spirit and you don't have a body. Well, remember Jesus' uh, account of, of the rich man and Lazarus. That tells us you will be able to recognize each other, even though you are simply a spirit waiting for that day when you'll have the new tent. These are just, the Bible refers to these shells we, our spirits our, and soul live in as our tent. But we're going to get a new tent. And it's going to be awesome because it's going to be like Jesus' tent. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Everything in God's time and order. All the grain doesn't ripen at once. My wife and I grow fruit. So we have a few fruit trees and we harvest it as it ripens. You know, the stuff on the top that gets the most sun ripens first. We harvest those. And then over about a month's time, we harvest the rest and the rest until it's harvest is finally finished. We will all be ripe at Jesus' return. Hallelujah. Many people will be ripe for the wrath of God. But those who are in Christ will be ripe to be changed into him, his image. Those who belong to Christ, by accepting his grace, will be ripe for glory. When I speak with those who are, are either dying or have a health condition which could take their lives, I find that those who are truly in Christ are at peace. Um, just last week, um, I talked to, to an attendee here, and he was having a quintuple bypass. Okay, 
he had had cancer, a close call before with cancer, and he said he was scared. He was afraid. But between then and now, this, this big surgery, this big, huge open heart surgery, he'd come to really know Christ. And the difference was night and day. He was at total peace. He knew whatever happened, it was good because he was in God's hands. And by the way, he's doing excellent. He's home recovering. Amen. You know, sometimes the people that are in Christ will have concerns about their loved ones, about those they leave behind. But those who truly know the Lord aren't afraid about the future. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The governments of man will be so corrupt and so vile that we're pleading for Jesus to take over and free us from the reign of man. It's that story in Daniel chapter 2. You know, the king, the image that, uh, that Daniel the prophet saw, that he told that the king had the dream and Daniel interpreted the vision and the, the kingdoms of mankind appeared as a man because they're all run by man and that's why they're all fallible. Um, this is a wonderful nation. I love it. But you can see the direction it's headed because man is running the show, right? And wherever man's running the show, there's going to be failure. And eventually it's going to get so bad, we'll be crying out for Jesus' return and to save us from the kingdoms of man. In that vision, a stone was cut out from the mountain without hands, and it came and crashed that image of a man and became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Mountains in scripture are representative of kingdoms. The kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. Hallelujah. No more nukes, no more biased judges, no more corrupt politicians. This is the message, though, that bothered Rome. It sounded to the Romans like sedition, for Caesar was the father of the fatherland. But Paul's not talking about an army of men, but of the second coming of Christ Jesus. Governments are not the benevolent rulers and bestowers of all good things. God is the giver of everything that is good and is ushering in a kingdom infinitely greater than Rome or any empire or government of man. Every worldly rule and authority and power will be destroyed and Christ will reign supreme. Then he will hand over the eternal kingdom to his father. And when God is all in all, death will be no more. The life of God will permeate all that remains and all will be as it was meant to be from the beginning, as the saints enjoy fellowship with our perfected brothers and sisters, but most of all with the Son of God himself, the Word made flesh. Verse 25 to 28, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Jesus is so sovereign over all this fallen world, but he has endowed mankind with free will. And free will has consequences. 
The day will come when every enemy, including death, will be defeated. Everything except God is under Jesus' authority. And when all is subdued, Jesus then will present the kingdom to his Father. And then God will be all in all, for evil will no longer be. All will conform to the perfect will of God. Everything will be life and light. The rebels against the goodness of God will be where they belong because true justice will be forever. And we will never again fear the greedy, the violent, or oppressors. That truth either frightens you or is your heart's longing, depending on your relationship with Christ. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? If we have no hope in the coming day when all is subject to God, what does baptism mean? Why should we endure hardship for Christ? Now, there's no evidence that this means the church baptized people in proxy for people who had died like the Mormon church does. In the second century, some Gnostic groups did baptize for dead people in hopes that it secured their place in heaven. The Corinthians may have been doing that as, that they, seem, as they seem to have had other Gnostic ideas, but Paul's not sanctioning it by asking why they would do that if they don't believe in resurrection. Without condoning or condemning them, he's just pointing out the inconsistency of their belief. Now, there may be another way of interpreting this. So here's the other, so this is one perspective that they they were just following this early Gnostic idea, saving a place in heaven for someone who'd already died. But he's asking why, not condoning it or condemning, it, just saying why do you do that if you don't believe in resurrection. The other idea is possibly what Paul was saying and what Paul has taught is that we die with Christ in baptism and are buried with him. He may be just pointing to baptism itself and saying we baptize, we die with Christ and we're raised with him, but why do we even go through that ceremony if you don't believe that you are raised with him? Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. If this life is all there is, why would the apostles subject themselves to persecution, hardship, and eventually become martyrs? Why not just enjoy the pleasures of life since it soon ends with no reward or no future with Christ? Is Jesus seeking a bride? who will soon die and be no more? What and when is the wedding feast of the Lamb then? And what did Daniel mean in Daniel chapter 2, 12 verse 2, when he said "Some who sleep in, those who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt? Those who do not believe in the resurrection live in this tension. We talked about this in, in Sunday school this morning. They live in this tension between trying to preserve their life and longing for experiences that are dangerous to their lives. You know, we, we enjoy like uh, riding on a roller coaster or, or doing something that's kind of on the edge to, to save somebody or put our, our own life on the line. We live in that tension between 
trying to save ourselves and, and yet help others. They will not heroically step out and risk their lives for others as that might be the end of their existence. But those who believe in the resurrection can face life keeping simple pleasures in their place while facing life's challenges without fear. Ironically, it's the resurrection that gives Christians what hedonism and self-exploration falsely promise, the ability to live and enjoy life to the full without fear. Christians will be able to conduct themselves with moral composure. In other words, an unwillingness to overvalue trivial matters. We all in Christ should die to ourselves every day to serve our Lord because he loves us and we want to please him. We should be longing for the day that we see him face to face when our sin nature is gone forever and we can look into his eyes and feel his embrace and to hear him without our mind getting in the way wondering, was that really the Lord? On that day, we can tell him how grateful we are for all he's done, for all the grace and love with which he's blessed us. What a day. Hand in hand, walking with him through the beauty of new creation. He'll tell us how he guided us and the fruit that came because of his hand on our lives. We'll sing Jesus, lover of my soul, and we'll hear him sing over us. Amen. Our hearts will be bursting with love for him. And there'll be no competition for that love. Then he will give us something to do to express our love. It says in Revelation, his servants will serve him then in eternity. And we'll do it in his power with all that's in us while feeling his joy as we serve him. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And that's why we die daily now. This conviction of resurrection helps us refuse sin and embrace his will even when we have to die to ourselves to do so. Verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now this is the only account in scripture that suggests that Paul faced wild animals. I don't think he was in an arena because Roman citizens were never put in the arena is he referring to people referring to them as animals or was this some wild animal he encountered on the road we really don't know but his point is why would i travel all over the world risking my life if i didn't wasn't sure of resurrection the greek thought that the soul perishes with the body encouraged hedonism getting the most out of life by enjoying physical pleasures. And that's why they have this saying, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, enjoy it while you can. And while many believers deny that this is what they believe, it's often how they live. The next most common idea was this, that Gnostic belief I explained earlier that the body's evil and the soul is good and the death of the body was a good thing so the soul could be released. It's another belief that's common in our day, even in the church. I once had this long discussion with a, a pastor's daughter who held this view, even after I shared a number of verses with her on the subject. But this view of 
the body is evil and only the soul is good and so we have to get rid of our body that Christ isn't isn't going to raise this physical body transform this physical body it could easily justify sinful behavior it's the condition Paul was describing in Romans chapter 7 without the hope given to us in Romans chapter 8 in other words oh well I can't help it I'm in this evil body but someday I'll be released or the view can result in super spiritualism you know I'm all spiritual I don't enjoy any physical things. Um, I, I, to, to be honest with you, I, I used to live that way. Um, when, between the time that uh, I graduated from high school until uh, God just opened my eyes to know he's given us every good thing in this life to enjoy. Um, you know, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. He enjoyed a good meal, and so should you. Not in excess, of course, but God has given us everything richly to enjoy. And I think it's, uh, uh, we're, it's kind of um, not appreciating the good things in this life, in this world that God has given us when we enjoy them in moderation and giving glory to God. That's that super spiritualism that, oh, my body's bad, so I can't do anything that's enjoyable. <laughs> The third view is that both the soul and the body continue on at resurrection. This is the view of the Bible. Many reject it because of the ugliness of death and decay. They can't imagine that God could, uh, who made us from the dust of the earth, can remake us in the same way. Even though science tells us we're a mixture of elements, we are so wonderfully and intricately made that it's hard to imagine that he could put it all together. They can't believe death can be defeated but Jesus showed us it was possible when he rose from death and raised others from the dead after their bodies had begun to decay. God can reverse the effects of time and entropy. We know it's scientifically possible. We can't imagine actually doing it, even though we have accounts of Jesus doing the same. Verses 33 and 34, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. The Corinthians are apparently tolerating some false teachers who don't know God and are leading them astray. To keep company with the, whether it's Sadducee or Gnostic types who don't know God and listen to their teaching corrupts their moral base. In other words, it's sinful behavior to listen to them. It's a lack of discernment on the Church of Corinth's part. They're listening to them because they wish to justify sinning, and our old nature loves to hear that. We get all kinds of teachers that come to Sedona, and some of them call themselves Christian, but what they're really teaching is kind of this, um, you can be super spiritual and and delve into things that, that we know in Scripture are forbidden. We need to do what he said here, wake up. 
The church was spiritually asleep like many churches today. Some compromising doctrine sneaks in through a teacher who looks good and he speaks so well. He sounds so reasonable and intelligent, but his teaching is different from the simple truths Jesus taught. It's a hint of pleasure-seeking, but with a spiritual sound to it. They tell us God wants us to be happy and even use the Old Testament verses to back it up. But Paul's saying, wake up. Shame on you. Even Jesus didn't look forward to suffering and wanted some other way, but he yielded his will to the Father's will. That's the way of faith and belief in the resurrection. They claimed to know spiritual mysteries, the Corinthians, and yet they led in this corrupting doctrine of no bodily resurrection. Paul calls that being in a drunken stupor. They were unable to reason and stay on the straight path. And that's the natural outworking of this idea that this life is all there is. How do we face illness, loss of a loved one, pain and criticism if we don't believe in resurrection? Every difficulty of life should be met head on knowing resurrection is coming. This is not all there is. We are just passing through like the patriarchs before us, looking for our heavenly city, whose builder and maker is God. Hallelujah. And we're almost home. Die daily, and your final breath will be your graduation. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.